Well, if you've got your Bibles this morning, let's continue our worship now in the book of Philippians. Please turn to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. This is one of my favorite New Testament books uh, in terms of its Christocentric nature. There is more references per verse in this book of Jesus Christ outside of the Gospels than any other. Some 54 times, in fact, the person of Jesus Christ is directly referred to or indirectly referred to. And as we come to a book like this, as we come to a letter like Philippians, I I want you to know that it matters what you think, because what you think is what you ultimately end up doing. It affects what you do. And of course, this letter highlights, does it not, the centrality of Jesus Christ in our lives. We are, we are to think like Him. We are to walk with Him. We are to be in tune with the Lord Jesus Christ in every part of our lives. He is to possess us by His Spirit, lead us, guide us, sanctify us, and conform us into His likeness and image. And so therefore, we need to think like Him. As we come to this letter, Paul is expressing spiritual realities consistent with being a Christian, a little Christ, one who follows and is being molded into the image of Christ. And he does this to encourage the Philippian believers and by implication to encourage us today at Grace Church of the Valley. You see, when God saved you through the death of his son and faith in that death on your behalf, then our hearts were radically changed from self-seeking to Christ-serving. When we surrendered our lives to Jesus Christ, we were in effect saying, my life now belongs to you. And in fact, Paul says that, does he not, that we have been bought with a price. We're not our own. We belong to another master. We sung, even this morning already, we've sung of King Jesus who rules and reigns over our lives. And so we're changed. Our earthly affections, our earthly desires give way to heavenly affections and heavenly desires. Instead of a hunger and thirst for the things of this world, we now have a hunger and thirst for righteousness. And righteousness becomes that daily part and practice of our life. And what I want you to see today and what we will see in our text is that genuine believers become givers rather than takers because their trust for the future is centered in the God of all grace who Paul says in Corinthians is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency... In everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. I I read a verse like that and I just consider the Christian life is like this, just this overflow of grace poured out upon us, like the, the Niagara Falls just pounding our lives and our hearts and our affections and our desires. And your giving of your time, your giving of your talents and finances is actually evidence of your gratitude, your thanksgiving for all that Jesus Christ has done for you. And what has he done? Well, we're told in Titus 2, 14, he who gave himself for us, 
to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Brothers and sisters, I trust that's your heart this morning, that as we are coming this morning to remember the Lord later on in the service, that your heart would be zealous for good works. And that you would desire to put off the flesh and walk in the Spirit and, and deal with those things that stumble you and hinder you and, and restrain you from the good works God has prepared for you to do. Now, why am I speaking on giving? Well, because I'm an elder. And right now, we are putting a budget together for 2024. And so my thought was, when, when Scott asked me to speak, I thought, well, what better subject to speak on than giving? This is a great subject, because we are to have giving hearts. And so I want you to evaluate your lives this morning in the light of the one who has given everything for you. What's your response to that? Now, I'm not speaking on the subject because giving at GCV is down and we're not reaching our budget, quite the opposite, in fact. This is a, an amazing church where giving is plentiful and we're thankful for that. God has blessed and continues to bless this congregation of his people and beyond us with an abundance financially. That's not why I'm speaking on this subject. But I've chosen the subject because I want you I don't want you to miss out on what our text is about to tell us. I don't want you to miss out on the incredible blessings of being a giver. My goal today in this message is to have you agree with the Apostle Paul who says it is more blessed to give than receive and to agree with Jesus who said to his disciples as he sent them out to the nation of Israel, freely you've received, freely what? What? Give. Freely you've received, say it with me, freely give. Yeah, you can talk, it's okay. So let's come to our text this morning, Philippians chapter 4, and we're going to read from verse 13 through 20. It's the end of this letter, but there's some amazing principles here for us to consider. Read with me, Philippians 4, verse 13, this is the word of the Lord. Paul, writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs, and, uh, needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. There's the principle. Let me say that again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Verse 18, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God shall supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever Amen. Join me in prayer. Father, as we come to your, your holy word, to this 
text, we pray that you would minister to us. Lord, may I decrease, may you increase, may your spirit apply these things to our lives. May we, Father, evaluate our own hearts before you in light of this truth. God, bless your word to our souls, to this church, for the building up of your kingdom, for the glory of your great name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So Paul in this text is expressing his thankfulness for the gift that the Philippian believers had sent to him by Epaphroditus. The gift to him was not in vain, and it's in this message of thanksgiving that we see the power of Christ-centered giving flowing from six life-changing realities. I've called these six transformative realities of Christ-centered giving, and my purpose in sharing these is it would help you as believers reflect the God of all grace. So let's talk about these realities. The first reality of Christ-centered giving flows out of Christ, verse 13. Look at it with me. And while this verse belongs to the previous paragraph and thought, it is foundational to what Paul is now writing in verses 14 through 20. And the foundation behind his insight to Christ-centered giving is, in fact, his contentment flowing from a relationship with Jesus Christ. He says, I can do all things, notice this, through him, through him, through who? Through Christ who strengthens me. Paul has learned the secret of being content in the the realm of want and in the content of plenty, being content in the area of plenty, and that was to look to Christ for his strength. And not to, be, not to be motivated and conformed and molded in his affections and desires and purpose in life by whether he had money in the bank or no money. He lived for Christ and for Christ alone. For me to live as Christ, to die as gain. If we're to understand what it means to give, to be a giver and not a getter, then we must first know the giver of life. Jesus said in John 10 verses 9 through 10, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. But the thief, he comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I have come, listen to this, that you may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This is an amazing reality, is it not? Listen, we are givers. We're givers because God has given us his favor and blessing. And therefore, through Christ, God gives us his grace, his forgiveness, his redemption and reconciliation. He gives you and me freely eternal life. He gives us his spirit without measure. He gives us a new heart, new affections, a new family name, a spiritual family, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He gives us an unfading crown of glory, an imperishable inheritance, a hope that can never be taken away. He gives us wisdom. He gives us victory over sin. He gives us sanctification, glorification, the kingdom, and ultimately, he enables us to live in the fullness of his glory. Amen? That's our God. He's the God of all grace. He gives and he gives and he keeps on giving. In the previous chapter of, of uh, Philippians, Paul said that, had, had said that he relinquished all of his power and status and privileges in this life 
things that would normally contribute to one's contentment and fulfillment in this world. But he let all of those things go. In fact, he said he counted them as, as rubbish, as scubalon, as dung, uh, as, as the trash at the end of the streets for the sake, he said, of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. So when Paul says, I can do all things through Christ, he really means that. You say, well, what what are the all things that he can do? Well, obviously, he's not saying, I can jump across the Grand Canyon and back again. That's not what he's saying. No, he's saying, I can do all things in each and every situation that I find myself in to the glory of God. And remember, he's writing this letter from a prison, from imprisonment in Rome, and here's a man that could be complaining and grumbling and murmuring, but he's, but he's, but he's not. He's, he's doing all things. He's enduring all things. He's, he's still serving the Lord, fulfilling the mission and the ministry God gave him. He's running the race. He's doing all things that he's been given to do through Christ who strengthens him. Maybe you're laid up on a, on a bed you're watching this morning or you're in some care home and care facility and you're saying, well, what do I do? What can I do for Christ? Well, you can pray. Pray for me right now. Pray for this congregation right now. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Wherever God has you, whatever situation he has you in, be doing what he's called you to do in that context, which is bring him glory for the sake of his great name through the power of Christ working in you. Paul lived in the strength of Jesus. This was his clear and persistent instruction to every believer. Ephesians 6.10, finally he says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. In 1 Timothy 1.12, I thank God, Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he judged me faithful, appointing me for service. 2 Timothy 2 verse 1, you therefore, my son, Timothy, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 4.17, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was rescued, he says, out of the lion's mouth. Paul understood what it is to stand firm, not in his own strength, not in his own abilities, but in the strength of the Lord. And to be a giver, you must have a foundation that can support your giving. And indeed, that foundation is knowing Christ. And Paul says that he lived and existed to know Christ and to preach Christ and him crucified. So we can be content in Christ. I mean, after all, he is the creator of all things. He is the upholder of all things. And so Christ-centered giving begins with knowing Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior. The one who freely gives us, Romans 8, 32 says, all things. This brings us to the second transformative reality behind Christ-centered giving, and that is that Christ-centered giving expresses true fellowship, verses 14 through 16. Look at verse 14. He says, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, share in my trouble. And, And in other words, Paul is saying, you've done a wonderful thing. You've done a beautiful, a good thing in giving me this gift. 
And the reason being was that they had not just given a gift, but they had shared with him in his trouble. They had entered into his tribulation, his persecution, and owned that themselves and were sharing with him. This word shared is the word koinonia in the Greek. You know it well, and it means and can be translated fellowship. You've had fellowship with me, Paul is saying. You've had fellowship in my afflictions for the sake of Christ. And this giving was a, indeed a true fellowship with him in the furtherance of the gospel. They were not simply putting money in the plates, but they were actually sharing in the ministry in all of its, with all of its inherent troubles. And when we give in this way, it means that we are, we are reflecting an authenticity in our Christian life. We are reflecting the very person of Christ. This is what genuine Christian faith does. It gives because we have been given to. And to whom much has been given, much is what? It's required. In verses 15 to 16, Paul highlights this heartfelt giving even further. He says, and you Philippians yourself know that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership, that's the word fellowship, again, koinonia, with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, he said, you sent me help for my needs once and again. They didn't just do it once, they did it again. And here they are again. They're a giving church. The Philippian believers were a giving people. And if you truly want to be part of the expansion of the church locally and globally through the preaching of the gospel, then you will give freely. You'll give freely at GCV. You'll give cheerfully. You'll give regularly to the work of the ministry. And when you do this, you are expressing a heartfelt fellowship with those that the finances are going to. You're owning and bearing the burden of the heat of the day with these folks, whether it's missionaries, whether it's pastor teachers whether it's servants in the body of Christ locally and further afield. This kind of fellowship of giving, we could call it, this, this, this giving from the heart is marked in the early Jerusalem church in Acts chapter 2, 44 through 45. Luke records that all who had believed were together and had all things in common and they began selling their property and their possessions and were sharing with all as anyone might have need. Now, we're not talking about communism here. We're not talking about socialism here. We're talking about a Christ-centered life that sees the needs of others and says, if I have the means to meet that needs, Lord, help me to do that. These were tumultuous times in the life of the Christians in Jerusalem, and people were going out of their way to meet the needs of others. In 2 Corinthians 8, 5, the Macedonian churches, were, which included Berea up north and Philippi and Thessalonica, first it says, gave themselves to the Lord and then to the apostles by the will of God. In other words, again, they didn't mindlessly put money in an offering bag, but they consciously, intentionally, and prayerfully supported the gospel ministry as the church expanded both north, south, east, and west. They gave this money to give back to Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem. That's true fellowship. That's the expression of true fellowship. We are in the fellowship, but we express that fellowship by our giving. 
The Philippians' generosity was according to their own will. There was no arm twisting, no emotional blackmailing, no music, no guy coming up on the stage and tipping out the offering and going, huh, that's not very much. You obviously don't want God's blessing in your life. I've been in those services. I've witnessed that. And that's not what this is about. There's no emotional blackmailing here. There's, there's just a willing participation in the spread of the gospel and the glory of Christ. And so the matter of giving, receiving then is a matter of, of the heart. It's a hard issue. It's not some cold, disconnected financial gift, but rather a vibrant relationship of giving and receiving flowing from an endearment of love for others and for Christ and the gospel. It's a, it's a partnership in the gospel. Jesus said it this way. He said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If we treasure Christ and we treasure the ministry of the gospel locally and globally, then it will be seen in our giving. The principle of true fellowship and Christ-centered giving is so clear. Listen, if you're not actively supporting gospel ministry, and I'm not saying, I'm not giving you an amount here because I don't think anywhere in the New Testament are we called to do that. We don't live in the Old Testament of giving a tithe, a 10%. In fact, if you study the Old Testament, it was somewhere between 23 and 25% that the Jewish people gave of all that they received, not 10%. So I think that when you get to the New Testament, we're not, Christ fulfilled the law. We We don't operate on that basis. Now we can learn some lessons from that. There's principles there we can apply, but we are to be grace filled, Christ centered, spirit led givers. If God prompts your heart to meet a given need, dear friend, do it. Just do it. It doesn't matter the amount. Just do it. You say, well, I've only got got $5 to give to this man. That $5 might be exactly what's needed to fill up the blessing God wants them to receive. And as you give, you too will receive. It's the matter of giving and receiving Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If you're giving, then what you're doing is something that's very commendable. It's an act of worship to God. And there's a response to that. That brings us to the third transformative reality behind Christ-centered giving. Firstly, it flows from Christ. It expresses true fellowship. But thirdly, it receives spiritual dividends. Look at verse 17. Paul Paul here removes any sense of obligation for giving to him by saying, not that I seek the gift itself. Not that I seek this gift. Paul wasn't sending out letters trying to get gifts. He wasn't trying to manipulate them. He just simply wants to say thank you. But at the same time, he wants them to know that he's truly content in the Lord, no matter what his circumstances And what's so special about their gift to him is the spiritual dividends that are theirs. Look at verse 17 again. It says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credits. Paul knows that if the Philippians hadn't given him this gift, then God would have met his need anyway. He would have met his need through someone else. 
I've had complete strangers from the world, pagans, meet a financial need in my life. God can move anybody, anywhere at any time, if you truly have need. And so Paul here values their support, not for the gift itself, but rather for the credit, the profit that will accrue to their lives, to their accounts. There's a spiritual dividend going on here, which, which Paul sees as continually compounding. It's compounding spiritual credits. And Jesus taught the same heart principle of giving, not in regards to finances, but in regards to giving grace to others. And I, and I want to make that clear here. Although much of what I say will relate to finances, it really relates to your heart. And it relates to a grace motivation, a Christ-centered motivation. In Luke chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus says, Give, and it will be given to you. What's he talking about? Most people say this is about money. That's not what it's saying. If you go back and read the previous couple of verses, you'll see that it, has, it relates to giving mercy and not judging others. It, 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 it costs you to show mercy. Give, he says, and it will be given to you, verse 38, Luke 6. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap, for with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. If you're that hypercritical, judgmental person who sees fault in everybody else and shows no mercy, dear friend, that's what you'll receive back. What you give is what you get. And as a believer, that's, that's so wrong, isn't it? I mean, think of the Lord Jesus Christ as he wooed you and called you and drew you to himself. Your, your life was filled with sin at every level. Don't ever say, I was a good person since I was a child. You were, in the Bible's eyes, sinful, None righteous, not one, none who seek God, none, 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 none. Understand all you are doing there is you're looking at your own life from your own perspective. We need to look at our life from God's perspective. When God looks at us and God sees us, he sees us as desperately corrupted, sinful people. Now, we're not as evil as we could be. I understand that by his grace. But evil resides in us, and the potential for every kind of evil dwells in our hearts, does it not? And yet Jesus comes while we're still his enemies, while we're offending him and his father, and we're trampling truth underfoot, and we're living pridefully and self-righteously. He comes and he woos us and he draws us, and then he gives his life for us. What a giving Savior we have. And so he says, give, and it will be given to you. Be merciful, just as your father is merciful. To be merciful requires a generous and gracious heart. And so we're to, goes on, Jesus goes on to say we're to love our enemies. We're to do good to those who hate us. Look, if someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. We live in a world of inequity. We live in a world where there's all kinds of issues going on, where nothing is really fear because sin dominates this world. 
It's better to be offended. It's better to be, have wrong done to you as a believer than to take another believer to court. Don't you think God knows what's going on? Don't you think God knows the circumstances of the unfairness being done to you? Don't you think God hears the slander and the judgments and and the persecution and, and the gossip that goes on against you? Don't you think God knows all about that? He's the only one who knows it perfectly. And you know what God wants? He doesn't, he's not pursuing your happiness. He's pursuing your holiness. And he wants you and me to understand that there's, the, there's this fullness of grace, that there's this place we can go to where, where gifts flow from us, gifts of grace, gifts of mercy, gifts of forgiveness, gifts of finances to meet needs. Do you see how, how big this subject is? One commentator wrote this, he says, spiritual dividends include... What are the blessings that come to us? He said they include a good conscience. They include assurance of faith. They include enriched fellowship. They include a broader understanding of the needs of the church. They include joy, love, and a growing reward in heaven. You could add to that. That's not exhaustive in any way. But do you see how broad this this idea of being a giver and not a getter is? Paul was more joyful over the credit that these Philippians would receive because of their generosity than he was of of his own physical needs being met. Consider the wisdom of Proverbs. Proverbs 11, 24, one who gives, one gives freely, yet another uh, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Proverbs 19, 17, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. And he will repay him for his deed. Proverbs 22.9, whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed and he, for he shares his bread with the poor. In other words, God is no man's debtor. As we give, so we receive. And you will never, 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 never outgive God. If your spiritual dividends right now were to depend on your current giving, how large a spiritual savings account would you currently have? Most of us watch our 401k or whatever our retirement fund is with an eagle eye. Let us watch our spiritual dividends account. Let Let us be as conscious of that as we are of what's in the natural, if not more conscious. And as you do that, ask yourself these questions. Here's a little examination for you this morning. Just listen to these questions and answer them in your own heart. Am I undisciplined or a good steward of the money and the resources God has entrusted to me? Two, am I greedy or am I generous like the Lord? Three, am I paying what I owe to the government or am I hiding, avoiding, or stealing from the government? Four, am I fulfilling my responsibility to my family by providing adequately for their housing, their food, their clothing, their education? Five, am I on disability when I could be working? Six, am I stealing from my employer employer by mismanaging my time, by exaggerating expense reports? Seven, am I buying illegal drugs? And wasting my money on 
smokes and drinks and inhaling addictive substances for my own pleasure rather than disciplining myself for the purpose of godliness. You can put whatever you want in that line. Beloved, we need to seek seek out our own hearts. We need to examine our own hearts and see if we truly are givers rather than getters. That brings us to the fourth to the fourth transformative reality behind Christ-centered giving, and that is that it spreads the fragrance of true worship. Verse 18, look at verse 18. Paul says, I've, I've received full payment and more. The NASB says, I've received everything in full and have an abundance. He goes on to say, I am well supplied. Notice the superlatives he's using here, full payment, more, well supplied. These, these words show that Paul was overwhelmed with the gift. It wasn't expected. And, and I believe he was overwhelmed because as he looked at this gift, he saw not so much an expression of the Philippians, but an expression of Christ through the Philippians. Their gift, he said, was a fragrant aroma an acceptable sacrifice while pleasing to God. Why was it that? Well, because the Philippians had submitted their lives to Christ and their giving was motivated by the nature and character of God himself. As Colossians, 2 Corinthians 9, 8 says, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. In Ephesians, Paul commands us to walk, literally to live in the present in love, just as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. And so, Giving then to meet needs is an expression of the love of Christ and gives off a pleasing aroma of worship to God. It, it, it manifests what's in our heart and that is that God is worthy of all that we have and all that we are. This is Old Testament sacrificial imagery drawn out of the book of Leviticus where, where God commands the, the priests as they offer the offering, the burnt offerings and the food offerings and the thanksgiving offerings on the altar, he says, to offer them that they might be a pleasing aroma to the Lord. This is the call of our lives, isn't it? Romans 12, we're to offer ourselves up as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is one of those areas, to be a giver, not a getter. And the desire of the worshiper in the Old Testament was to please God, to make much of God, to magnify God, to see their resources as God's resources being given back to him for his glory. And the implication is that all we possess exists for him and should be constantly being offered up as an act of true worship. If you're a believer here this morning, We need to join in together and reject the thinking that only a certain portion of my income is to go in the offering of the Lord's day. That's wrong thinking. Now, I'm not saying you should give all your income into the offering. What I'm saying is you should offer up all your income to God and use it in accordance to the wisdom God has provided. And in other words, to take care of your own, to minister to others and to serve others for the sake of the gospel and to give also in the local church. It costs money 
It costs money to have a facility like this, to run a facility like this, to have a team of people who serve and give and, 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 and pour out their lives in the context of this congregation. It costs money. It costs money to have missionaries we support overseas for them to do what they do. It costs money to take the gospel to the farthest corners of the globe. It just costs. But oh, the dividends are great. And so the gift given to Paul by the Philippians was acceptable to God because it came from hearts that were longing to please God by being obedient to the Lord. And so they offered themselves first to the Lord and then they gave as an act of worship. The fifth transformative reality behind Christ-centered giving. Not only does it flow from Christ, not only does it express true fellowship, not only does it receive spiritual dividends, not only does it spread the fragrance of worship, it also leads to the experience of divine blessings. And look at what it says, verse 19, and my God will supply every need of yours according to the riches, his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. This is a promise. This is a promise to us. And the context is that of giving generously and sacrificially. But notice carefully, you can't claim this promise. You can't experience this promise if you're not in its context first giving generously and sacrificially of yourself. Paul is saying to them in a sense here, I can never repay you, but I know that as you have given so graciously and generously to me, God himself will repay and replenish even more than what you have given. This is an amazing spiritual principle of blessing. As you give generously of yourself, you will not become poorer, but richer in the Lord the covetous person may possess earthly wealth and protect their own agenda and their own time and, and, and lock their lives down just to themselves and what they want, but, but have no spiritual riches when they die. Jesus himself said, listen, what does it profit you if you gain the whole world, but you lose your soul? You know, as I thought about this message this morning, I thought of my own heart and my own life, and I thought, am I, am I rich in my soul? Has God furnished my soul with riches? Do I feel like a giver, or do I function like a getter? One commentator said this, the covetous person is the most unchristlike individual on earth because he stands in such glaring contrast to the loving Savior who gave himself for our sins. But look carefully at verse 19. Look at it again. It says, God will meet all your needs, not all your greeds. God knows what we need and when we need it. I remember being in seminary. We'd been eight, eight months into the seminary process. We thought we brought enough for a year and we're eight months, we're done. We just have enough money to fly back to New Zealand. And I remember getting on my knees with Barbie and we prayed and we said, Lord, help us. We, we have only enough to fly back to New Zealand and our rent was up, our rent was due and Lord, we're thankful. We're thankful for the experience we've had. If you take us back to New Zealand after eight months, that's fine by us. But Lord, if you want us here to complete this, we need your help. As I'm praying, a name pops into my head, a name that I only heard once. I met this guy in the very first week that I was here in the United States 
And he said to me when I met him, he said, Andy, whatever you do, don't lose your, don't lose your, um, your accent. I was hesitant to say that because you have an accent too. Did you know that? So he said, whatever you do, don't, don't let the Americans conform your accent while well, you have, I'm sorry, when I went back to New Zealand, I was told that I've lost my New Zealand accent completely. So now I'm in no man's land. I don't know whether I'm American or a Kiwi or somewhere in between. But anyway, this guy's name came to mind. I pick up the phone and I said, hey, Steve, I don't know whether you remember me. Of course I remember you, he said. Eight months later, never met him again. Of course I remember you. I remember you coming to my office. I said, Steve, on that day you said, if ever I needed help, for anything, call me. I said, I don't know whether you really meant that, but I need help. And so we talked and he was a man who had owned a lot of property and, and uh, there was ways to, to actually get, cut your rent down by working for him, serving him. And he said, you know, Andy, I don't have any property left. I sold it all. <clears throat> I have no, no way for you to become a property manager, but he said, you know, there's a guy I know. I haven't seen him for months. Maybe he could help you. He said, Let, let's just pray about this right now and see what God does. And so he prayed. So Bob and I had prayed. Now he prays. I get off the phone. I go back and study my Greek. Three hours later, the phone rings, and this guy says, you won't believe who's just walked into my office. I haven't seen this guy in three months, and he's looking for a manager of an apartment block right now. Are you available? I said, yes. Do you want to talk to him? I said, yes. God provided. He provided for our needs. God knows what you need. Don't be anxious. He knows what you should eat and what you should drink and what you would wear. You don't need to be anxious about those things. Rather, Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, Matthew 6, 31 through 34. God knows every detail of your lives. You can't drop off God's radar. God knows exactly what you're thinking right now. He knows exactly where you are. He knows exactly what you're planning to do afterwards. You can't get off his radar. He knows what trials and what tribulations are in your life because he's allowed them for his glory and he wants you to receive from his grace so that you can rise up under the trial and do that and bring glory to his name. Peter said to Jesus in Luke 18, verse 28, Behold, we've left our homes and we've followed you. And Jesus said to them, to the disciples, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God. Notice that. It's a caveat there. For the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times as much as this at this time and in the age to come eternal life. I want you to know I'm living proof of that. God has provided for Bob and I and for our children in ways beyond what I could have ever imagined. God loves you and God loves to do the impossible when it comes to making provision for us. My questions to you are, does your giving reflect that reality? Does your love for God move you to give generously? Are you really concerned about the welfare of the Lord's servants? Do you regard your Christian stewardship as a partnership in the gospel more than a me giving and them receiving kind of relationship? Do you really believe God will supply your needs? Do you really want to give and share your resources so that God is glorified? Verse 19 is so mind-blowing when you meditate on it. 
You are more secure. If you're a believer who's a giver, you are more secure right now than if you had a million dollars in the bank. Well, that leads us to the last point. One last transformative reality behind Christ-centered giving, and I'll just give you this briefly because time's gone, but not only does this, this reality of Christ-centered giving trans- flow from Christ and express true fellowship and receive spiritual dividends and spread the fragrances of worship, but it leads and leads to the experience of divine blessings, but last, it radiates the glory of God himself. Now to our God, verse 20, and Father, be glory forever and ever. When you give out of the grace of God, when you show mercy, when you yield time from self to serving others, when you give of your resources and your talents for the kingdom of God, you are investing in that which is eternal, and that which is eternal is the worship and the glory and the honor of God. Read Isaiah Isaiah chapter 6, and you'll see Isaiah seeing this throne, and around this throne are angels, and they're constantly crying out, holy, holy, holy. Worship is flowing from the angels constantly to the Lord, and it will flow from us. You come to Revelation, and we'll sing a new song, and we'll say, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and glory forever and ever. And why can we do that? Why will we sing that? Because we've experienced his giving to us. He is worthy. You can't save yourself. You can't secure yourself. Only God can do that through his son. And so how do we give him glory? How do we give him glory right here, right now? Well, when you give, give secretly. Don't do it blowing trumpets like Matthew 6 tells, tells us the Pharisees did. Don't be a hypocrite. Give without fanfare. Give secretly. Two, give in the same way Christ gave of himself, sacrificially. Three, give cheerfully without compulsion, 2 Corinthians 9. Four, give as an exercise of your heart, 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Five, give as an overflow of adoration for God as as an act of worship. Six, give with the motivation to meet needs, James 2, 15 through 17. Seven, give with a focus to provide for for the ministry, for teachers, for pastors, for teaching elders. Give. Eight, give to the work of the ministry, Philippians 4, which we've just studied. And nine, give with a focus to the furtherance of the gospel, Romans 15, 25 through 27. Dear believer, bring a Christ Being a Christ-centered giver is a matter of your heart. It's a matter of your heart, and it's made possible because Jesus Christ himself first gave to us. Listen to Galatians 1.4, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of God. 1 Timothy 2.6, who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony given at the proper time. Titus 2.14, who gave himself to redeem us from every lawless deed. True worshipers are givers, not getters. Because they are content in Christ, they demonstrate true fellowship, they display spiritual dividends, they spread the aroma 
and the worthiness of Christ and experience his blessings all for the glory of our great God. Let me finish with this question. Are you a giver or are you a taker?